Chapter Thirteen of Dwellers in the Hills by Melville Davison Post. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. Chapter Thirteen, The Six Hundred. It is an unwritten law of the hills that all cattle bought by the pound are to be weighed out of their beds, that is, in the early morning before they have begun to graze. This is the hour set by immemorial custom. We were in the saddle while the sun was yet abed. The cattle were on two great boundaries of a thousand acres, sleeping in the deep blue grass on the flat hilltops. Judd and two of Marsh's drivers took one line of the ridges, and Marsh and I took the other. The night was lifting when we came out on the line of level hilltops, and through the haze the sleeping cattle were a flock of squatting shadows. As we rode in among them, the dozing bullocks arose awkwardly from their warm beds and stretched their great backs, not very well pleased to have their morning rest broken. We rode about, bringing them into a bunch, arousing some morose old fellow who slept by himself in a corner of the hill, or a dozen aristocrats who held a bedchamber in some windless cove, or a straying Ishmaelite hidden in broom-sedge hollow all displeased with the interruption of their forty winks before the sunrise. Was it not enough to begin one's day with the light, and close it with the light? What did man mean by his everlasting inroads on the wholesome ways of nature? The great mother knew what she was about. All the people of the fields could get up in the morning without this cursed row. Whoever was one of them snoozing in his trundle-bed after the sun had flashed him a good morning— the home life of the steer could be healthy reading in any family. He never worries, and his temper has no shoal. Either he is contented and goes about his business, or he is angry and he fights. He is clean, and as regular in his habits as a lieutenant of infantry. To bed on the highlands when the dark comes, and out of it with the sun. A drink of water from the brook, and about to breakfast. We gathered the cattle into a drove, and started them in a broken line across the hills toward the road, the huge black muleys strolling along, every fellow at his leisure. The sun, peeping through his gateway in the east, gilded the tops of the brown sedge, and turned the grass into a sea of gold. Through this Eldorado the line of black cattle waded in deep grasses to the knee. Curly-coated beasts from some kingdom of the midnight— in mighty contrast to this golden country. I might have been the merchant's son, transported by some wicked fairy into a land of wonders, watching, with terror in his throat, the rebellious jinns under some enchantment of King Solomon travelling eastward to the sun. Now a hungry fellow paused to gather a bunch of the good-tasting grass, and was butted out of the path, and now some curly-shouldered belligerent roared his defiant bellow, and it went rumbling through the hills. We drove the cattle through the open gate of the pasture and down a long lane to the scales. Nicholas Marsh seemed another man, and I felt the first touch of triumph come with the crisp morning. Woodford was losing. We had the cattle, and there remained only to drive them in. It was a wonderful thing how the frost glistening on a rail— or a redbird chipping in a thicket of purple raspberry briars, can lift the heart into the sun. Marks and his crew were creatures of a nightmare, gone in the daylight, hung up 
in the dark hollow of some oak tree with the bat. Marsh and the drivers went ahead of the cattle to the scales, and I followed the drove, stopping to close the gate and fasten it with its wooden pin to the old chestnut gate-post. High up on this gate-post was a worn hole about as big as a walnut, door to the mansion of some speckled woodpecker. As I whistled merrily under his sill, the master of this house stepped up to his threshold and leered down at me. He looked old and immoral, with a mosaic past, the sort of woodpecker who, if born into a higher estate, would have guzzled rum and gambled with sailors. His head was bare in spots, his neck frowsy, and his eyelids scaly. "'Young sir,' this debauched old worldly wiseman seemed to say, "'you think you're a devil of a fellow merely because it happens to be morning. Gad sooks, you must be very young.' When you get a trifle further on with the mischief of living, you will realize that a bucketful of sunlight doesn't run the devil out of business. Dammy Sir Ra, please to clear out with your cursed whistling. I left him to cool his head in the morning breezes. Nicholas Marsh was waiting for me at the scales when I arrived. He wished me to see that they were balanced properly. He adjusted the beam adding a handful of shot or a nail or an iron washer to the weights. Then we put on the fifty-pound test, and then a horse. When we were satisfied that the scales were in working order, we weighed the cattle four at a time. I took down the weights, as Marsh called them, and when we had finished, the drove was turned into the road toward the river. Marsh grasped my hand when I turned to leave him. "'Quiller,' he said, "'it's hard to guard against a liar.' but I do not believe there was ever a time when I would have refused you these cattle. Your brother has done me more than one conspicuous kindness. I would trust him for the cattle if he did not own an acre. Mr. Marsh, I said, what lie did Woodford tell you? I was told, he replied, that Mr. Ward had transferred all of his land, and as these cattle would lose a great deal of money, he did not intend to pay this loss. I was shown a copy of the court record, or what purported to be one, to prove that statement. I do not think that I ever quite believed, but the proof seemed good, and I saw no reason for the lie. He stopped a moment and swept the iron-gray locks back from his face. Now, he continued, I know the reason for that lie, and I know the paper shown me was spurious. It was high-handled rascality, but I cannot connect it with Woodford. It may have emanated from him, but I do not know that. The man who told me disclaimed any relation with him. Twigs, I said. No, he answered, it was not Twigs. The man was a heifer buyer from the North Country. I would scarcely know him again. Not Twigs, I cried. He was here last night. I know it, Marsh answered calmly. He brought me this letter from Miss Cynthia. Will you carry it back to her, and say that your brother's good word is enough for Nicholas Marsh? He put his hand into his coat and handed me Cynthia's letter, and I stuffed it into my pockets without stopping to think. I tried to thank him for this splendid fidelity to Ward, but somehow I choked, with the words pushing each other in my throat. He saw it, wished me a safe drive, and rode away to his house. 
he was a type which the hills will do ill to forget in the rearing of their sons a man whose life was clean and therefore a man difficult to wrong i should have been sorry to stand before nicholas marsh with a lie in my mouth he is gone now to the country of the silences he was a just man and to such even the gods are accustomed to yield the wall i followed slowly after the drove the broad dimensions of woodford's plan at last clear in my youthful mind he had put ward in his bed and out of the way then he had sent a stranger to these men with a dangerous lie corroborated by a bit of manufactured evidence a lie calculated to put any cattleman on his guard and one that could not be tracked back to its sources then to make it sure twiggs had come riding like the devil's imps with some new warning from cynthia how could such planning fail and failed it had not but for the honour of this gentleman or perhaps some design of the unknowable behind the machinery of the world generation of intriguers here are the two factors that wreck you the high captains of france overlooked the one in the prosecution of an obscure subordinate and absalom the first great master of practical politics somehow overlooked the other in my pocket was the evidence of cynthia's perfidy with the envelope opened travelling home as lies are said to ward might doubt the attitude of this woman when she smoothed matters with that dimpled mouth of hers or crushed me out with her steel-gray eyes but he would believe what she had written when he saw it then a doubt began to arise like the first vapour from the copper pot of the arabian fisherman could i show it to ward marsh had sent it to cynthia could i even look at it i postponed the contest with that genie suicide is not a more deliberate business than cattle driving a bullock must never be hurried not even in the early morning he must be kept strolling along no faster than he pleases if he is hurried one will presently have him panting with his tongue out or down in a fence corner with the fat melted around his heart yet if he is allowed his natural gait he will walk a horse to death remember he carries fifteen hundred pounds and there are casks of tallow under his black hide besides that he is an aristocrat accustomed to his ease in large droves it is advisable to keep the herd in as long and narrow a line as possible and to facilitate the driving a few bullocks are usually separated from the others and kept moving in the van as sort of a pace-setter it is surprising how readily the drove falls into the spirit of this strolling march some battle-scarred old bull leading and the others following him in the dust it is said that neither fools women nor children can drive cattle the explanation of this adage is not here assumed nor its community of relation i know the handling of these great droves is considered business for an expert the cattle owner would no sooner trust a herd to men picked up by the roadway than the trainmaster would trust the limited express to a stranger in the railroad station if the cattle are hot they must be rested in water if possible if there is no water then under some shade throw down the fence and turn them into a stranger's field if the stranger is a person of good sense he will be glad to assist your necessity if not he must yield to it 
these are the laws of the hills always remembered as the lawyer remembers the statute of frauds it is impossible to go too slow watch the mouth of the bullock he is in no danger until his tongue lolls out at the corner like a dog's then rest him let no man go through your drove he must stop until it passes him if he refuses he must be persuaded if one bullock runs back let him alone he will follow but if two turn them at once with a swift dash at the cattle horse never run a steer if the cattle are frightened sing to them and ride through the drove old-fashioned swinging methodist hymns are best make it loud the cattle are not particular about the tune i have heard the profane ump singing old hundred and riding the bay eagle up and down in a bunch of frightened cattle and it was a piece of comedy for the gods i have heard judd with no more tune than a tom-tom bellowing the doxology to the great audience of polled angus mooleys on the verge of a stampede and i have sung myself many a time like a circuit rider with a crowded mourner's bench one thing more know every bullock in your drove get his identity in your mind as you get the features of an acquaintance so that you would recognize him instantly if you met him coming up at the end of the earth a driver in the hills would not be worth his salt who did not know every head of his cattle suppose his herd breaks into a field where there are others of the same breed or he collides with another drove or there is a tremendous mix at a tavern the facility with which a cattleman learns to recognize every steer in a drove of hundreds is an eighth wonder of the world to a stranger any one of us could ride through a drove of cattle and when he reached the end know every steer that followed him in the road and i have seen a line reaching for miles easy with your eyebrows my masters when men are trained to a craft from the time they are able to cling to a saddle they are very apt to exhibit a skill passing for witchcraft with the uninitiated i have met many a grazier and i have known but one who was unable to recognize the individual bullock in his drove and his name was a byword in the hills judd and the cardinal followed the drove and i rode slowly through the cattle partly to keep the long line thin but chiefly to learn the identity of each steer i looked for no mark nor any especial feature of the bullock but caught his identity in the total as the head waiter catches the identity of a hat i looked down at each bullock for an instant and then turned to the next one in that instant i had the cast of his individuality for ever the magicians of Pharaoh could not afterwards mislead me about that bullock. This was not esoteric skill. Any man in the hills could do it. Indeed, it was a necessity. There was not a branded bullock in all this cattle land. What need for the barbaric custom when every man knew his cattle as he knew his children? Later on, when little men came, at midlife, to herding on the plains, they were compelled to burn a mark on their cattle but we who had bred the beef steer for three-quarters of a century did no such child's play how the crowd at roy's tavern would have roared at such baby business i have seen at this tavern a great mix of a dozen herds that looked as like a potful of peas separated by an idle loafer sitting on a fence calling out that one's woodford's 
and that one's Alkires, and that one's Maxwell's, and the polled Angus Mooley belongs to Flave Davison, and the old-fashioned one is Westfield's. He must have got him in Rowan or Nicholas, and the Durham Queen's and the big Holstein belong to Mr. Ward, and the red-faced Hereford is out of a greenbrier cow and goes with the carpers. By the time I had gotten through the drove, we had reached the crossroads and I found Ump waiting with the two hundred cattle of Westfall. The Bay Eagle was watching the steers, and Ump was sitting sidewise in his saddle with his hands around his knees. I hailed him. Did you have a hard job? Easy as rolling off a log, he answered. I thought King David would throw his coat, but he was smooth-mouthed and cross-legged as a peddler. Did Twiggs get in? I asked. Beat me by a neck answered the hunchback. But I passed him coming out, and I lit into him. Fist and skull, said I. Jaw, said he. I damned every carper into fiddle-strings from old Adam to old Columbus. What did he say? He said we was the prettiest bunch of idiots in the kingdom of cow-tails. End of chapter 13